Welcome to Focus on Success with Fazia Costi. Our program is designed to help you with executive function challenges. Our guest experts offer perspective, experience, and ideas to improve different aspects of your life. Now, here is your host, Fazia Costi. Good morning. This is Fazia Costi. I'm an executive function coach here in Arizona, and I work with individuals diagnosed with a variety of issues like dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, ADHD, as well as other executive function challenges. And I am also very excited to talk about um, an upcoming summit. It's called Setting Your Kids Up for Success, June 7th, 8th, 9th of this year. And we have eight experts lined up. One of them includes myself. We will be talking about different aspects of helping your child get back on track with um, education. We're going to be giving you tips on communication. We're going to talk about um, the importance of parental relationships and how they impact children. We're going to talk about how, how do you know if your child has mental health issues? So these are all wonderful topics that we'll be addressing in this wonderful summit. If you are interested in joining us for this free summit, please go to my website, executivefunctioncoachaz.com, and you can register there. Um, I would like to introduce you this morning to Ricky Light. She is an educational advocate and strategist. Welcome to the show, Ricky. Thanks, Fazia. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'm really excited to have you on today because you do something that most people, you know, don't even realize your services are out there. Tell us a little bit about how you got started. Or, or actually, let's back up a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your background, your educational background, your work background. What, what makes you qualified to be an educational advocate and strategist? So I'm proud to say that I've been in the field of education um, for over 40 years. I knew I was one of those kids who knew that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I think it was that I wanted a blackboard. Um, but, but then when I got my blackboard, I still carried on my, um, my thought that I wanted to be a teacher. And at some point, I realized I wanted to be a special education teacher. You know, growing up, that wasn't really around, um, or if it was, we didn't know about it. So when I began my teaching career, um, jobs, I'm from Toronto, Canada, and jobs at that time in the teaching, in special education or in teaching in general were very slim, but I had the good fortune of being able to do a practicum during my education, and uh, it was in a school for only children with developmental needs. And the first day I walked in and thought, oh no, what am I gonna do? And then by the end of the day, I know I said to myself, here's where I'm gonna be for at least the beginning of my life. So I did start off as a teacher for um, young adults who weren't that much younger than me uh, as a teacher for them. And it's a long career. It's been 40 years. I've, I've been very fortunate. Um, never had a job I didn't like. I was a classroom teacher in what we called in Toronto, um, a segregated setting in those days. That was when they took children who were in institutions and started taking, closing the institutions and bringing them back to group homes or their parents' homes, and I taught in one of those schools, and then was quickly segued into a school for children um, 
who continued to have special needs, but we rented space from our local from our local school district. So we really were not a part of the school. And, uh, you know, I, I could probably go on and on, Fozzie. So just, Fozzie, so stop. <laughs> what, what attracted you to being an advocate, though? What, what about all these wonderful experiences that you had helping others? What made you decide to become an advocate? So I think I always was an advocate. Um, my first experience that I was telling you about because we weren't part of the school, I had to do whatever I could to have my students included in the student body. So I became the choreographer of the school play and and I was constantly advocating for my kids, constantly working with families because those families had visions of their children someday sitting in a general education classroom along with their peers not being separate. And then when I moved um, to Los Angeles in 1986, again, I was in a segregated setting and had to figure out how to help my students become incorporated into the community. And then I started, and at that time I was working for the Los Angeles School District and it sounds like I couldn't keep a job, but in reality, I had very many opportunities. LA School District is massive. So I was a classroom teacher. Eventually I was a career and transition teacher. Um, I was a, a specialist for the entire district where I oversaw preschool through 12th grade. But but my role always on the teams, no matter what, if I was a teacher or if I was a behavior specialist, it didn't matter. I sat beside the parents and I tried to help to demystify the whole education, the whole special education process for them because it is overwhelming, it is daunting. And we as special educators speak our own language, a lot of acronyms, a lot of innuendos. We get it. Sure. Parents don't. So that's how I. That's Abs- like absolutely. Beginning. Yeah, and education is such a vast uh, career choice. I mean, I I think one of the most fascinating things to me when I first joined uh, the field of education, I didn't realize how big it was. You know, there's so many things that you can do in the field of education. So advocacy is only one thing, and yet you're still in the field of education. So it's, it's a wonderful career path. If, if anyone's looking for a career path, it's truly an amazing career path. Uh, what are some of the biggest challenges that a student faces in school? So what are the biggest challenges that you see that you help advocate on behalf of students and parents? So I would say that um, the list is long. Um, And especially it's become more complex this year with everything, you know, in school, out of school um, and everything that's going on in just the whole world with COVID. Um, But I would say one of the biggest challenges that people face is just trying to figure out who is this child? And, And, you know, each person is so incredibly unique. So, so what, what is it in this child that is, that is, areas of strength and what in this child are areas of need for this particular child. And that's, you know, I have to tell you, Fazia, that's why I love my job. No two cases are ever the same. Diagnoses may be similar in, in the, you know, clinical terms, but no two children are ever the same. No two school settings are ever the same. No two classroom situations are ever the same. So just the whole idea of helping parents navigate through the system, helping school teams understand the child and the child's unique needs, um, I would say is, is probably 
my biggest area. Of- so what does your intake process look like? How do you get to know your students? So to be very candid with you, I usually get to know them initially um, two-dimensionally. I will read the reports. I, I have become an expert in reading all kinds of evaluations, medical, clinical, and then I usually spend about an hour and a half to two hours, uh, usually about an hour and a half with the parents. Um, once upon a time, it was face-to-face, and now we, you know, we speak on the phone, and I just want to know from their perspective, who is your child? You know, and, and I always start my consultations after I kind of get through the demographics. I start my consultations with, what do you love about your child? And, and Fazia, to be honest, when parents struggle with that question, I know that they're really in crisis. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I do a very similar thing. I, I want to know what are your strengths? What are the things that, that this child does well? And you're right. When they struggle, you know they're in trouble. Yeah. And then the next thing, you know, depending on the age of the child, you know, kids, I'm located in the Melmed Center, my office. And so they're coming into a a medical type of setting, although they don't give shots or do anything like that. It's a developmental pediatric practice. And let's talk about where is Melmed Center? It's in Scottsdale. Yeah, it's located in Scottsdale, Cactus and Tatum. Um, and, yeah. Behind the Olive Garden there. Um, it's a lot yeah, just for our listeners, we are an international school. This is in Arizona in the US. Right. And just just so that the listeners know, they families do not have to be affiliated with the Melmet Center in any way um, to use my my services. I have consulted nationally, internationally. Um, and, you know, thank goodness for technology, phone lines. Um, I've done IEP meetings in South Korea. I've done meetings in England, you know. So, so my services are not limited to just Scottsdale, Arizona. That's wonderful. And that's a really important thing to know because I think because of COVID, people are having educational crises everywhere. How have you been handling all the challenges with COVID? So initially, there was a little panic on my part. Oh, no, how is this going to work? I um, I just want to say one more thing. You know, you asked me, how do I get to know the children? So I told you two-dimensionally. Depending on the age of the kids and and where they're kind of at in their lives, I may meet with the children too. have parents bring them in or, you know, in the age of COVID, we've done a couple of Zoom meetings. I've even met teenagers at coffee shops outdoors <laughs> um, just to kind of help them understand who I am. But with COVID, it's presented some challenges and, and not others for my for what I do. I've easily segued into being able to do phone conferences with parents. And I tell them anyway, I'm going to be looking at my computer, writing down what you say, reading report, you know, looking at reports while we speak. So, so that has worked really well because I don't feel that I'm being rude by if I'm typing something that they tell me. The other thing is I've been participating in Zoom, you know, meetings, Zoom meetings and virtual meetings with teams. And for the most part, they've worked. Um, You know, we all see each other on the screen. We're all able to speak with one another. So um, it, it hasn't impacted my practice as much as others. Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's certain people, especially kids that do need to be seen in person. I think they're, you almost have to see their whole body to really understand what they're dealing with. But like most practitioners these days, I too work solely via Zoom. 
And it's, there's a few people that it just doesn't work for, but for the majority it does. And, and, you know, you have to work with what you can. So I would imagine coaching um, and trying to work on those, those skills, those executive (laughs) functioning skills, like you do, that would be a little more problematic. Um, The one thing I do miss um, and which, which I thought was a great part of what I did um, because, I, I go in, I used to go in a lot and do observations in the classroom. The kids didn't know who I was. That's also why I don't meet with kids face to face, because if I do go in and do an observation, I don't want them to have any idea of who I am. And when I was in the classrooms, I was able, you know, pictures worth a million words. Sure. I was able to see real situations and able to then speak with teachers afterwards and, you know, share my observations. And then when I came to the meetings, I was better at, um, I'm more adept at being able to know who that child was, at least in that moment in the classroom as a learner. Yeah, and I think that makes a huge difference. It makes a very big difference. So what different diagnoses do you have parents call you with and say, you know, is it is it all ADHD or do you have other diagnoses that you help with? I do literally the gamut from A to Z. Um, I have worked with children with many kinds of um, challenges from autism to executive functioning to learning, behavioral, social, emotional, developmental um, needs. So, so what I always say to people, it's kind of a phrase I've coined, let's call your child purple. And what does purple need maybe to be a little more blue or a little more red? And by that, I mean, Yes, the diagnoses are important. They certainly help to um, narrow things down a little bit and in some ways help parents understand that they're not alone out there, that there are other children out there who have similar needs. But then again, like I said at the beginning, every child's every child. So I like to look at the strengths and then I like to look at the areas of needs and then I like to look at the goals. Where do we want that child to be? Where are we heading? What? And I always, I like, to find out from parents, what are your hopes and dreams? And what's your child's hopes and dreams? You know, so, so we have a direction. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, it sounds very similar to how I do my job. You know, that's pretty much what I look at is their challenges and their strengths and try to strengthen those uh, challenges and then find some goals and help them move along those lines. So it sounds wonderful. Uh, I'm really glad to see that you get so involved with your students. That's what's wonderful. So um, how does a parent um, get help if they suspect their child has a diagnosis? What, what would you normally recommend? You know, it, it, it depends. I, I, I tell parents to listen to teachers, um, number one. And depending on the situation, you know, a, a child in middle school is less apt to be recognized right away than a child in an elementary or preschool. And even as part of my intake, I will ask parents about what did your, what, what was preschool like? Because I have a lot of respect for preschool teachers in their ability to see. But, but if you, if parents were noticing um, any irritability around school, dropping grades, um, not wanting to be in school, you know, um, frustration, I mean, the signs are there. Um, it's just a matter of picking up on them and saying, hmm, maybe there is something going on. And if there is, number one, I would say sit down with the school team and say, hey, you know, this is what we're noticing at home. Um, what are you seeing at school? And 
you know, first line would even just always be, I like to have things in writing. So just sending an email to the teacher saying, look, I'm noticing this, or are you noticing that? Or, you know, grades aren't, aren't doing well. Or when we read at night, things he's not reading or she's not able to answer questions or whatever the parent or sit still or, you know, attend. Sure, sure. Any of those um, hard signs that pa- parents see. What are some of the signs that you hear about the most often? Homework <laughs> is a four-letter word, so I'll hear that. <laughs> um, and you can tell spelling wasn't my forte. Um, no, that is often, you know, problematic where parents are trying to help their kids with homework and the kids are just so resistant or unable mm-hmm. to do it or, um, or done at the end of the day, they're like done. Um, that's a problem. You know, reading, um, emotional regulation is sometimes a problem. Um, just sitting and attending. And, and parents, by the way, Fazia, this year has been eye-opening for parents, especially at the end of last school year when kids were all home and parents were watching them try and engage. And um, parents have learned a lot about how their children learn in the areas of struggle by just trying to support them in the home environment. Absolutely. I mean, and and then on top of everything, you, you kind of pile on the fact that they have to learn a new skill. They have to learn online learning like instantly, not, not just the students, the parents as well. So it's just been an absolutely, um, I don't even know what the word is for this year. It's, it's monumental. Been, <laughs> monumental is, is an understatement. It's been, it's just been enormous. The, yeah. the amount of the learning curve for this past year has been unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I, teachers also, you know, yes. I, I um, empathize with them. There were some amazing, amazing teachers who, you know, really stood up and really tried to, um, engage their kids and keep them going. And there were some that did minimal work, but for the most part, I think it was just trying for everybody. And and I'm glad schools, at least here in America, or some places in America are starting to go back or have been in session all year and just going with the flow. And I think, you know, when you say that, it it truly is some places. I have uh, students in... um, I have a student in Minnesota, and that's their school is just now starting to let kids back in. Whereas in Arizona, they've been going back for quite some time. So it's 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 different all over the country, all over the world. It's fascinating how everyone's handling COVID so differently. And we have another factor that I really see emerge, you know, that anxiety, that angst in children. I had one family who told me that their child was the one that in preschool, the child is now 12 or 13. In preschool, that was the child that they could barely pull up to the parking lot and stop the car before that child bounded out of the car and ran to the preschool and, you know. Right didn't want to see the parents till the end of the day. And that was pretty well that child's experience throughout school. Well, this year, what's happened is that child was online learning at home, which a lot of our schools did at the beginning, and was anxious and fearful when the parent had to go out to work. So we're seeing a lot more anxiety, a lot more angst. Kids are really nervous. Uh, Many, like you say, in Arizona have been in school. A lot of our charter schools have been open all year with minimal disturbances, but but a lot of the um, unified school districts have not. And so 
those kids whose parents now, even though the schools are open, have chosen for you know very personal reasons to keep the kids at home, are trying to think about them going back next year and they're dealing with severe anxiety. Kids wiping off, you know, worried about touching anything that anybody else has touched. Like we've just got this whole layer that we didn't have before. Yeah, it's it's going to be very challenging to deal with all of this come fall. It will. And, and that's why we're having the summit to help kind of, kind of help parents prepare for this coming year. You know, all the things that you can do to really help your child reduce that anxiety and, and help them understand what's what's coming in this fall and what they can expect, kind of really clarify things for them. That's awesome. All right. So once a child gets a diagnosis, what should a parent do after that diagnosis? Should they call you? Should they talk to the school? What do you recommend? So generally, you know, when you talk about a diagnosis, you're talking about a parent who has sought some type of medical diagnosis um, because obviously doctors, pediatricians, developmental pediatricians, like those at the Melman Center can definitely diagnose um, some of these underlying conditions. And then what I say to the parent is, if the child is, stu- is struggling in school, um, contact school. So provide that information to the school, always in writing. That's, that's a caveat for me, in writing. Why, why in writing? What because makes that if important? It, if, it, if it's not written, it didn't happen. How, even I tell parents when they've had a hallway conversation, um, and some of those hallway conversations, the content is pretty jarring. <laughs> Sometimes things are said that shouldn't be said in the way that they're said. I tell parents, go home and always write a clarifying email. I just wanted to see that I understood that you said you didn't think our school could meet Johnny's needs. Can you, Did I understand that? And if so, why, why, and why not? You know, always go home and write the clarifying email. Even if it's something like, Johnny had a great day today. Thanks so much for sharing with me that Johnny had a great day. We're so encouraged that he raised his hand and waited for others to speak. Do you get the gist of what I'm saying? Absolutely. It's just, if it's not written, it didn't happen. And then that also helps parents because when they come to me, I'll often ask them, Let's for a timeline, let's go through what you have done. So let's say they do get the medical diagnoses. Um, I say to them, contact the school and provide that information to the school if your child is struggling. Now, if a parent has, if a child has a diagnosis of any type, let's say say ADHD, um, but it's not necessarily impacting that child in school. The child's doing great, homework is getting done, you know, things like that, then that child may not need support in school. But most of the time, why do parents seek diagnoses? Because it's impacting them in school and home and church and, you know, in the community. Um, Sure, socially. Now, if somebody gets a diagnosis and it's not impacting them at school, should the school know about it anyway, just in case? Um, I think so. I think, you know, just just to be aware, because uh, you and I know that at some point it will impact them in school. Um, and so we want to be a little bit proactive. And, and like I said, parents don't seek a diagnosis because everything's fine. There's often concerns. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those concerns need support. So telling your school, I think, is really important in that situation. Um, how can 
a diagnosis impact your child's progress in school? So if somebody um, gets a diagnosis, does this diagnosis usually, um, I mean, you and I talked about how it affects their, you know, their homework or things like that. Does it also impact them socially? Does it also impact them? Like what other areas of their lives does it impact? You know, it, it can impact every area of children's or children and people's lives. For example, um, social, often people, if we're talking about um, attention deficit, ADHD, often those kids don't read the soft social cues. They miss them. They're in, sometimes they're very impulsive and they're not really watching for them. They call out when they shouldn't. They, they might have difficulty with like, where does my body end and yours begin and kind of ramming into kids or, you know, not, not because they're mean kids or anything. They just, they're so in the moment um, <laughs> that they're not kind of thinking about, oh, what just happened here? Or what will people think or things like that. So, so definitely social. And look, if, if kids are struggling in school, emotional, behavioral, um, it, it, it's a domino effect. It doesn't mean if your child has ADHD that all these th- things are going to be impacted. It just means there's a possibility. So why not work collaboratively with the team? Maybe not formally, and we'll, I think we'll probably talk about the formal ways to address it, but maybe informally mm-hmm. so that it doesn't become a problem. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are getting close to our, our break time, and I just want to have um, the opportunity for you to give out your information should anyone want to contact you. So if you want to get a hold of Ricky Light and you are looking for an educational advocate or strategist, uh, please, you can uh, look at her website, lighteducationaladvocacyservices.com. And I believe that's a new website. So um, please go look at it and have, give her, give her a nice thumbs up there and, and uh, um, look at her website so that she can uh, get some more hits on that. Um, is there any other way that you'd like people to contact you, Ricky? Sure. Like I said, I am affiliated and have been for 20 years with the Melmud Center. So we do have a website at the Melmud Center and it's just Melmud, M-E-M-L-E-D. Oh, sorry. M-E-L-M-E-D Center, C-E-N-T-E-R.com. Or if you want to reach me, you can email me through my email, which is my name, R-I-C-K-I dot light, L-I-G-H-T, at melmedcenter.com. Thank you so much. Um, Is there a phone number that they can contact you at as well? Sure. The best way to reach me is my cell phone. And that number is, it's in the U.S. It's 602 5 Three eight seven four nine three. Wow, that's that's uh, been an amazing conversation so far. I, I really appreciate your time today, um, and we're going to take a break here in about a minute. When we come back, we'll talk with uh, Ricky Light some more about uh, educational advocacy and how you can maybe um, support your child in the educational system. And if you need help, she's here to help you. Um, If you want to get in touch with me, my phone number is 480-648-1122. My email is fazia at executivefunctioncoachaz.com. 
And you can also go onto my website, which is executivefunctioncoachaz.com. And um, we'll be back after these messages. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you are struggling with organization, time management, or other executive functions, Fawzi Acosti is ready to put you on the path to success. Visit executivefunctioncoachaz.com. Fawzi works with in-person clients at her Phoenix, Arizona office or with clients anywhere across the country remotely. Mention that you heard this ad from the Focus on Success radio show and receive a free initial consultation with Fazia, plus $50 off an intake evaluation, a $300 value. Visit executivefunctioncoachaz.com or call 480-648-1122. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Focus on Success. To reach Fozzie Acosti or her guest on the live show, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Fazia at Executive Function Coach AZ.com. Now, back to Focus on Success. Hi, welcome back. I'm Fazia Costi. I'm your host today. We are meeting with Ricky Light. She's an educational advocate and strategist. Welcome back to the show, Ricky. Thanks, Fazia. Yeah, so I'm really enjoying our conversation talking about educational advocacy. Um, Can you tell us the difference between a formal evaluation and an informal evaluation? Should someone need those? Sure. So um, the whole identification process in schools for special education is pretty complex. Um, The initial schools are are mandated to make sure that every child has access to the general education curriculum that's sure. being taught to every single child in that grade. That, that's just assumed. So when a child seems to be struggling in school, the initial path that every public school in America and Canada um, is supposed to take is that they are supposed to try to accommodate, you know, make some changes, do some things informally, um, and try and see if that makes any difference. If the teacher, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry, what are some of the things that they could modify informally? You know, the way that they present, present material. For example, if a teacher just gets up at the front and just 
lectures, you're going to miss half the kids in the class who prefer to see things when when um, they're learning. Um, they might so they they can change the way that they teach. They can change the pacing of the lesson. They can change the way that they um, you know sometimes teachers will teach a concept and then take a smaller group and do it more formally or, or check in, make sure that the kids do it. Some kids need more time to finish assignments. Some kids need less time. Uh, you know, some kids need to do the assignment in a different way. Uh, the list of accommodations is longer than both arms stretched out. Right. Uh, but, you know, again, they, so teachers try kind of like their bag of tricks. And then if, if they find that for some particular students, they're doing more than they would just do for the average group of students, that's when a teacher should be kind of contacting their school team and saying, hey, you know, little Susie's struggling and here's a list of things that I've tried and I've noticed I need to do this more often than anybody else. Um, and, you know, I would, I would say it's best practices to include the parent in that, even that initial conversation of, hey, I've noticed this, this is what I'm going to try. And that just kind of keeps the parent in the loop and they're usually appreciative. But if, sure. you know, if they find that, hey, things have been, you know, this child needs more support than just the things that I'm doing, that would be the teacher's responsibility to then bring in the team formally and say, let's take a look. And if parents have any outside medical diagnoses, they can bring that to the table. If they don't, um, the school team can conduct a very comprehensive evaluation. Do you want me to talk a little bit about what that would? Okay. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Okay. So for, (laughs) it gets very complex because there's an informal kind of set of accommodations that can be done and tried that didn't work. Now we maybe are looking at something a little more formal. So a section 504 accommodation plan comes under the rehabilitation act. um, And that has gone through a couple of iterations and you're basically looking, is there any underlying medical condition? And by medical condition, the, the scope is vast. Anything from attention problems um, to physical ailments to anything that might inhibit attention and focus, in cl- ability to attention and focus. So, like, let me just take a medical condition. If a child has um, diabetes, you know, depending on what's going on systematically in that child's si- body during the day, the ebbs and flows of blood sugar levels, that can affect. Sure. You know, attend. Would that child necessarily need more comprehensive um, specialized instruction? Maybe not. Maybe just some accommodations during those times when focus wanes and things happen. Anxiety, attention. I mean, there's, there's a list of any medical conditions or that might impact alertness, focus, attention. So the team would come together. All outside information that's pertinent would be shared by the parent. And then they would see, does that child need more, need a more formal plan? And if they decided, yes, let's try some accommodations, that might segue to a Section 504 accommodation plan where those accommodations are now listed um, and therefore have to be implemented across all the settings that the child's in in school. So in the art room, in the music room, in the math room, um, depending so on we what- can- can we talk about maybe an example or some examples of an accommodation, like maybe sitting up at the front of the classroom or 
taking tests in the library? And what are some of the accommodations that you recommend? So it depends on the need. Um, so, you know, accommodations can be as simple as what we call preferential seating. But when I, I like parent, uh, teams to be very specific. So if we're saying preferential seating for some children, that means near the back by the door, if they have to get up and leave to use the restroom or for whatever. For others, it might mean smack in the middle of the front, you know, in front row, smack in the middle, right so that the teacher has eyes on you as the teacher's teaching. Some classrooms don't have the board at the front, and sometimes the teacher's off to the side. So that might be the better place. So in other words, preferential seating close to instruction might be what we do. That's a pretty basic one. Um, additional time on tests additional administration of tests in a more quiet, um, less distracting environment. There's never a completely undistracting <laughs> environment, but, you know, as ideal as possible. Sometimes kids who struggle with reading can do the test, but they just can't read the questions. So, so those are, you know, some kind of easy ones. They can become more complex depending on the needs of the child. Give us an example of a complex accommodation. Okay, so for example, a child with dysgraphia, challenges with actual the actual physical ability to write, might need to dictate responses into, you know, voice to text, might need, and, and sometimes that, you know, not every child can speak clearly and not every uh, voice to text application can translate <laughs> appropriately. If we, any of us have used Siri, we know the mess it can get us in sometimes. <laughs> so, um, some children, it's as basic as being able to dictate and an adult or a staff member, you know, scribe for them. So that would, you know, the complexity of that can vary depending on the need and how it plays out in every situation. Sure. Absolutely. Um, what, what is an IEP? So that's an individual education program or individual education plan that is tied to a completely different law that is tied to and these laws in America come out of the federal government uh, out of the Department of Education. This one does. The other one is linked to the Office of Civil Rights. 504 is linked to the Office of Civil Rights. And let me just say with 504, it's dealing with discrimination. So trying to avoid a child being discriminated against because of the disability. So being at a disadvantage due to the disability. The, I, um, the IEP comes out of the Individuals with Disability Education Act, or IDEA, which went through another iteration in 2004, um, but has been around for a long time. But basically, what that says is, if there is an area of suspected disability and you know, the teams have tried other things and now are at the point where they think, no, this is really impacting the child, then there needs to be a formal set of evaluations done. And basically, the point of that is to rule out the existence of many underlying, possible underlying um, situations that might be impacting that child. So by a comprehensive evaluation, Fazia, that can mean um, we always look at the cognitive ability. How does a child pr process information? We often will look at um, the academic ability. How is that? And we're using the measures that are being done. Number one, are being done by qualified personnel. And number two, are being done using standardized measures. So in other words, they've gone through all the you know, efficacy 
trials and not every test done during an assessment like this is standardized, but most of them are because we want to be able to measure the child against peers of the same age or same grade. So we would do an academic assessment. Those are usually the beginning, um, depending on what we're looking at. If, if a child suspected of possibly having some type of social or communication disorder, we might be looking at a lang- comprehensive, receptive, expressive language screening. If we think social is a problem, they might do social pragmatic um, screen um, assessments. If there's any kind of gross motor, <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me, we might do something like a a physical therapy if it's, it's, you know, very linked to gross motor movement. If it's fine motor movement or sensory or anything like that, we might be looking at an occupational therapy assessment. We would also, executive functioning comes in now and there's some great measures um, that can be done. Most of those are questionnaires. Um, that teachers would fill out, parents would fill out. They can assess in, if, you know, vision is a problem. There's vision specialists and, and tests that can be done. Hearing, there's hearing tests that can be done. Um, let me just think. I know I'm missing other ones. Any area of suspected disability shouldn't be overlooked. But then again, we don't need to test for vision if, if they pass their vision screening. You know, so sure. really looking at what are the needs? How is this looking in school? Where are the areas of need? And what do we need to rule out? So it sounds to me like the IEP is a much more comprehensive process than a 504 accommodation. If a parent comes into the school and and they're kind of in a place where um, they're just not really sure what they need and they're kind of in between a 504 and IEP, how how do they make a decision? What's the steps that they need to take to really decide if they need a 504 or an IEP? So no one particular person decides that this is what a child needs. It really is a collaboration. It's a team effort. And parents are an integral part of that decision-making and the whole process. So if a parent did have a diagnosis, child was really struggling in school, they they would, again, bring that information to the team, ask that the team convene a meeting. It's usually called a review of existing data meeting, R-O-E-D. There's one of those special ed acronyms that we invented um, meeting. And what would happen at that meeting is that all the information the parents have presented, teachers, um, everyone would just kind of talk about what do we know about Johnny right now? And what do we need to know? What more information do we need to have? So generally from that meeting, they either decide, look, if a parent has had a comprehensive assessment done outside and they bring, you know, privately and they bring that into school, school is obligated to look through it, consider it. And if they think, you know what, we need to do some classroom observations or we need to ask the teachers questionnaires or if they need additional information, school personnel always has the right to then ask for permission, by the way, parents, they can only conduct these um, assessments if parents grant permission. Schools conduct can conduct screenings, kind of, you know, non-informal screenings. They cannot do a comprehensive evaluation without parental permission, which is in writing. Once parents sign that form saying, yes, I give you permission, and they, the form will have, and it is a form, will have listed every area that they are going to assess in. So, let's say, you know, they want 
the school gives a whole list of assessments, but they never said speech. They won't go ahead and do a proper speech assessment unless parents have specifically signed saying, yes, you can do that. Um, They might do a screening, which is fine. They're allowed to do that, but they're not allowed to formally test. And then the results of that, they're allowed through the law, 60, 60 calendar days from the day the parent signs the assessment form to conduct the assessment. And then within those 60 days, the team needs to come back again, reconvene and review here's the results of the assessments, here's what we found. And then from that, decide, yeah, we see areas of need or we don't, but maybe, you know, we'll do a 504 because we do know that they have, the child has this outside diagnosis. It is impacting, but not severely, you know, depending that the decision to provide an IEP or not all comes from that formal, informal um, assessment process. Does the student, um, is the student asked to be part of this or does it depend on their age? How how involved does a student become in their 504 IEP plan? So that, it, it, it varies again, excuse me, from, from student to student. Um, I have high school students that cannot come to their IEP meetings, which I, I like to encourage them, especially as they get older, because Part of a, a huge part of IEP um, planning when they get to high school is that whole transition part. What will you do next? And I exactly. like exactly involved. Um, sometimes I've had you know parents who have brought their fifth graders you know to the IEP meeting. So here's what I say: you know, parents, let your child. You know your child best. Um, you make that decision. Sometimes what we've done is when we're going over all that hard data, um, which, you know, some of the information can be difficult when a child here, for a child or even a parent to understand, maybe the kids don't need to be part of that process. They don't need to know that they got a standard score of, you know, 50 when everybody else is getting 100. They don't need to maybe know that information when they're younger. But the part, if you do have a child that you do want to be involved in the process, that they should be involved, is kind of the decision making. You know, hey, we're going to, you know, you're going to go to Mrs. Jones's room um, once a day. She's going to help you get your planner organized. She's going to help you with your um, reading. She's going to, you know, the, or, you know, Mr. Jones's room, he's going to help you, whatever it is. Um, sometimes bringing kids in sort of once we've made the decisions, for especially those younger kids, is a good time to bring them in. Um, I've had, like I said, families who have started with kids, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade, they come to their IP meetings, they tell what will work and what won't. As they get older, Again, you know, up to the parents, but it's important to come. And again, maybe sometimes for that hard data part, not so important. For the decision-making, yes. The time when it's very important is when you're writing behavior plans for older kids. You know, we are incredible at coming up with amazing ideas, but if we don't, (laughs) and if we don't, and it will, you know, maybe work for me, maybe not. But if we don't involve those children in the decision-making, the the plans aren't going to work. No, those uh, wonderful plans just flop. <laughs> right. Yeah, and sometimes the IEP meeting, Fazia, is not a format to do it. There's a, you know, a whole bunch of people from the school sitting around the table looking at the kids. Um, sometimes what I recommend is let do that kind of more small group. You know, maybe the counselor, maybe the special ed teacher, maybe the parent and the child, maybe a favorite teacher, and sit around and kind of talk about it. Um, 
that is sometimes a better format. <laughs> Agreed. Absolutely. I agree with that. So we've talked about K through 12. Do you ever advocate for college students? So college is a whole different ball game. In, in college, um, IEPs go away. They do not exist. Um, but every single college has um, a student support service that they provide. Um, so in colleges, the answer, quick answer is yes, if parents want me to. But once those students turn 18, um, a lot of places don't want parents doing the advocating anymore. So they want the student to do it. They're young adults. Um, so, you know, in, in those rare cases where kids will sign over and allow parents the opportunity, or if there's guardianship issues and, and parents do have full educational guardianship, well, then that's a different situation. But when kids are going off to college or community college, what I'll often do with families is just sit down. The number of accommodations that they're given in those um, venues are, are fewer. Um, so we'll, we might discuss that. I always, always recommend that they go in and a parent can go with, I, I know, you know, I say to parents, go with your pad, you know, your pad of paper and your pencil and don't, you, you can work with your child beforehand on a list of questions to ask, but you kind of be the recorder of the answers to the questions. And so, yes, I do help families kind of navigate to that system, I would say, and maybe initially through it. But um, I also try and help them understand that those student support resource centers or support centers can offer things even as much as tutoring or, you know, lots of support, but the onus is on the, usually on the student to initiate it, to follow through and to take advantage of it. Thank you. That's, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, Let's talk a little bit. We have a few minutes left. I'd like to talk about community support systems. What, what can you share with our listeners about community support systems? So, you and know, why are they important? So, so there are a lot of agencies out there, and sometimes, to be honest, Fazia, the parents are much better connected than I am um, to these agencies or to understanding, depending on the severity of the diagnosis. Now, many kids with more who are more impacted by um, their needs. The families have been in the community systems like Department of Developmental Disabilities, things like that since the children were little, because there is just for any parents listening of very young children, there's a in Arizona, there's something mm-hmm. like AZIP, A-Z-I-P, um, where they can and, and I would recommend anybody across you know America um, and Canada. If, if you do have a young child and you are noticing challenges with speech or things like that, then you do contact these agencies. But as they get older, it becomes even more important. And especially in high school, one that parents don't know about is vocational rehabilitation. And that's one that they should be connecting with and speaking to school about to prepare for transition. So um, I'm not going to go through all the different agencies because obviously they're different in, in every place, but, but certainly look for those. They're available. How, how can somebody find these agencies? What, what should they look for? I mean, if they're going on to Google, what, what, do, they, what do they look for? You know, if, if we're talking about Americans, um, Go to your state government, look under um, Department for Developmental Disabilities, type those words in, developmental disabilities, um, support for special ed, and not special education because they're different. They're outside of the school setting. Some of them kind of don't um, 
do work when the children are younger, when school, their school age, they kind of take a backseat or might just provide more in-home support. And as they get older and are about to transition, we'll have a more active role in those, those young adults' lives. All right. Thank you so much. Um, we have a, we have a couple minutes left before we end the show. Is there anything that we have not talked about that you would like to share with our listeners? So I just want to quickly kind of recap what I do as an educational advocate. My role is to sit with the parents. I'm very child-centered, so I'm not the parent advocate, and I correct teams that call me that. I am the child's advocate. I like to look at the child. I like to figure out what does this child need? How can we work through this? And as a team, you know, what's what are the best how can we give it our best shot? Um, I like to help support the parent, help the parent understand the process. And I like to empower the parent. I always tell parents, you know, I'm, I'm going to teach you how to advocate for your child. And most parents are amazing at doing that anyway. And some of them are just so lost in the system. So I help demystify the whole system for them. And sometimes just having somebody sit beside you. Um, I'm not emotionally involved, but um, who's not involved is very helpful. So I basically tell the parent they are the captain of my ship as as the advocate. I will do whatever I can to support them. um, and, And we do it together. And once again, can you tell everyone how to get a hold of you should they want to call you and have a chat with you? Sure. Again, my cell phone number is 602 538 seven four nine three or I can or you can go to light educational advocacy services which is a brand new website still being developed <laughs> um, or you can just go on to melmidcenter.com and take a look and contact me through them wonderful thank you so much Ricky light um, I really appreciate everyone who listened in today this has uh, been a fabulous and educational experience for me as well Uh, If you are interested in our upcoming uh, summit called Setting Your Kids Up for Success, it will be June 7th, 8th, 9th of this coming year, this year, not this coming year, this year, um, 2021. Uh, We are going to be having eight different speakers. We're going to be talking about the importance of parental relationships and how they impact children. We're going to be talking about communication. Does your child need mental health services? So all these wonderful uh, topics will be covered in our summit. If you're interested, please go to executivefunctioncoachaz.com to register. It is a free summit. We look forward to having you again next week and have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Focus on Success. Please join your host, Fazia Costi, for another program next Wednesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.